Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like babies, toenail clippings and cheroots <laughs> or baby's toenail clippings i remember <laughs> i remember, I I remember when my my two were really young trying to clip their toenails was terrible and i'm sure there's a history about that as there must be a history about moles voles and holes scrolls trolls and another kind of holes as in the entirety of something however this is to monstrously digress as ever because what we're supposed to be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example dr sam willis who knew that the history of sheds is in fact all about the grade 2 listed devon house Oh, the writing hut of Henry Williamson, he of Tarker the Otter fame. It's also about the American naturalist and philosopher uh, Henry David Thoreau and Walden Pond. It's about boys' toys, men's sheds, a room of his own, and it's also about community sheds in modern-day Australia. Did you know that? Mm, no. no. Yes. Of course you did. Or that the history of bathtubs. <laughs> the history of bathtubs is all about prohibition in the United States and this was a homeschooling podcast from way back in lockdown we are no longer in lockdown are we which is good news yeah. No longer in lockdown, and so we've stopped with our homeschooling. But they were immense fun whilst they were going on.、Uh, let me introduce you all to my fellow presenter. Let me just say that if history was an apple perched on the head of his only child, the present day, this man would be none other than William Tell. So steadfast is his arm, so true his aim, so trustworthy is his ability to target the past with precise arrow-like research. He is none other than Professor Extraordinaire. Of early modern British history at Plymouth University, he is Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice that I've already explained who you are already,、uh, which doesn't work. So ably helping me co-pilot these episodes. Well, let's just say that if he were a trust-related historian, he'd only be the exact opposite of King Charles the First. He of English Civil War or British Civil War fame, in the sense of being. The opposite of untrustworthy. So regal and reliable is he. So trustworthy are his endeavours in the archives. So majestic is his mastery of the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine, the famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. Hello, everyone.、Um, we're doing the history of trust. 
and I can't for the life of me remember how we came up with this one. Have you got any idea? I know exactly how we came up with it because I'm doing a lot of reading for various things at the moment and when I come across something that I think oh that would make a great topic for a podcast I scribble it down and this time I was reading something about 17th century Dutch merchants correspondence and trust (laughs) and I thought there has to be a way that I can crowbar that into an episode well, I'll tell you what I could crowbar into an episode is that I've been doing some stuff recently on 17th century Dutch traders in the um, the Gulf of Cambodia. Ooh, and uh, nice. some ship, shipwrecks there. There's some really interesting treasure hunting going on in the uh, kind of late 80s, uh, an Australian guy called Mike Hatcher. Um, and he found um, a, a, a two extraordinary wrecks laden with uh, Chinese porcelain. And the, what made the porcelain particularly rare and interesting is that it was, it was purely for, the, uh, for an Asian market, which meant that the designs of the porcelain was not um, manipulated or adjusted for European market. So in the same way that the Chinese food that we eat in England is very rarely actually Chinese. So the same way is that a lot of what we think of as Chinese porcelain is not actually uh, particularly Chinese because it's been corrupted or changed for the European market. Anyway, so it was purely Chinese designs um, around about the 1640s, 50s, I think. Um, Fascinating stuff. So there you are, a bit of um, 17th century Dutch history for you there. Uh, Just crowbarred in. Oh, that's superb. Talking of, before we go on to trust, talking of of Chinese porcelain, I've just read a very excellent book uh, by a historian called Anne Gerritsen called The City of Blue and White, which is all about Chinese porcelain and the early modern world. I think you should mm. check it out, Sam. It's absolutely stunning. But yes, as you as you as you say, we are doing we are doing the history of trust. Well, do you know what? It all kind of links to that because. Um... It, I, I suddenly thought, oh, well, how, how on earth am I going to do trust? You obviously had the advantage of knowing exactly what you were going to talk about, having read a book about trust. And I wasn't entirely sure, but I suddenly thought about uh, money and exchanges um, and checks. I've always found checks completely crazy that you could just write, a, write you know, on a, on a bit of paper and sign it. And someone will give, you know, I, I give Daybell £100 and then you take it somewhere else and then they, get, they give you £100 of their money. Never really understood that. Um, and anyway, immediately thought about my... Uh, all the work on I, I've done with with trading, particularly with um, with the East, with Asia, I thought there's a huge amount of interesting trust issues there. I thought about trust in war, particularly betrayal of trust, and um, also a, a kind of linked with that an idea of of um, national identity and who some people consider to be foreigners coming into their own country and who they who they feel like they are able to trust. I think there are issues of, of national identity and xenophobia and racism um, there as well. Um, I thought that because I was driving around this morning at seven o'clock in the morning and there was a van in front of me that had a sticker on it that said, I feel like a foreigner in my own country. And we had a bit of a debate about whether it was going to be um, a black person or an Asian person who uh, was you know, born and bred here but then feels uncomfortable because of racism or whether it was a white person who was just being racist, basically. And uh, it was unfortunately the latter, I think. Um, anyway, interesting. And, it may, and there are all sorts of, par- of parallels there about um, how you can trust uh, uh, people who've come into your country anew. Lots of really interesting ones from the Second World War. Um, with the French government trying to get locals in France to trust German soldiers. Ooh, I must admit, although I read that article on 
on Dutch merchants and trust. I, I actually unpacked many more interesting things, and I think there are all manner of ways of studying the history of trust. And if we unpack it, I mean, first of all, we, we need to think about what it means. And it can mean reliability, that somebody is good to their word. It can mean honesty, integrity, all of those kinds of things. Then you can start thinking about people or institutions that you trust, and the way that you were talking about. So governments to run the country in an appropriate and orderly manner that is that is fair and equitable for all. Legal systems that ensure justice and the application of law and across history do you do you trust those um thanks for your you know trust can also be to look after your money uh, banks and institutions that don't go bust you know and and make you lose everything and there's an interesting history here linked to things like the uh, wall street crash or the south sea bubble you know those kinds of things where people lose confidence or trust in an institution or a market but also I think it's about interpersonal relations so it's about the people around you that you interact with on a daily basis who you might trust or put your trust in and we can think here about people in authority whether it be policemen teachers firemen church ministers and a betrayal of trust in these people that you know that makes it morally bankrupt demeaning sometimes criminal and here we can think about the history of childhood and child care a state intervention in the family and the way in which the role of these institutions as caregivers has often been unfit you know and people in great positions of trust have in fact you know have in fact sort of gone against that trust and actually you know behaved in ways that are that are criminal particularly um, you know, I'm thinking about child abuse and those kinds of things. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But also more personally, we can think about it in terms of close relationships, not of people in authority, but those that you bump into on a daily basis. So friends, acquaintances, family. And I've been listening or looking at the work of the St. Andrews based philosopher Catherine Hawley, who I recently listened to on one of my favourite podcasts, Philosophy Bites. If you've never listen to it. I've been listening to it for ever since it began, years and years and years. And they've got about 350. And I listened recently to the the episode that they had on trustworthiness. And here what it's about is that imagine that you are a parent and you might rely on people to look after your kids, to take them somewhere safely, to have sleepovers, to babysit them. Trusting them is that you think of them as reliable it's something that you value. It's the opposite of those people who are flaky or untrustworthy, who who overcommit and can't fulfil what is promised. They're people who are unreliable. So that's the opposite of trustworthy. But there's also a parallel in people who are too trustworthy in their own minds. In other words, they they like being thought of as trustworthy. It's part of their identity. But actually, that means that they often don't overcommit that they they let you down because you can't rely upon them. So in actual fact, it's the very opposite of trust because you can't trust them because they are so, you know, they are so trust, they're, they're so sort of keen on being trustworthy that you can't trust them if there's some sort of weird <laughs> irony there. <Whoa. laughs> um, but anyway, check that out. Uh, great podcast. Um, uh, Philosophy Bites and Catherine Hawley on trustworthiness. Hmm. 
Fascinating. Stuff. Where are you going to go with trustworthiness, Sam? Um, do you know what? I, I was going to start with checks. I will start with checks. But it just made me realise that when you're talking about governments and, uh, you know, trust and faith in, 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 in sort of big society, it made me realise how much of a contemporary issue this is, particularly around vaccines. And I bet um, there is a fascinating history of um, early vaccines where, where, where essentially, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a mental flip, like to protect you from smallpox, I'm going to inject you with smallpox. Um, and uh, I'm really interested in how that played out and what role trust had in that. And I bet it was really, really important. So not only just with the, the you know, the original inventor of the vaccine, but then actually being able to roll that out across um, a huge, uh, huge public who all needed the vaccine, but were probably suffering from a lot of the problems we're suffering from now all over the world. So a lack of education, a lack of knowledge, lack of understanding of exactly what the vaccine was and how it how it worked. So some interesting parallels there. Anyway, checks. I'm just going to start with checks because I think they're really, really, they're so weird. The more you think about them, they're really very strange indeed. And I found some interesting history that highlights this. Um, the, the history of Czechs actually goes back to the Roman period. Even um, there's some uh, similar kind of promissory note from the Maurya Empire of India, which is, um, is a fascinating Iron Age historical power of South Asia. If you've not come across that before, I'd go and have a look at it. Um, but it's also, it's, well, unsurprisingly, it's the Muslim traders um, uh, of, of the ancient world who set the precedent because they had so many extraordinary challenges they had to deal with. So um, so complex was the trading systems across the Silk Road. And in Arabic, you have the Huala, and in Persian, it's called the Suftaja, which is a, it's a letter of credit, essentially. And that allows merchants to transfer and exchange currency to others over long distances. Um, and Islamic regulation deemed that these letters had to be honoured. And they found letters in cities like Cairo and um, Siljmasa, which is modern day Morocco. And they've shown that letters of credit like this, up to 40,000 dinars, which was a fortune at the time, they existed from uh, a period around the time of the First Crusade. So uh, we're talking uh, 1096, uh, the end of the 11th century. So huge um, notes um, we, we know existed there, huge sums being honoured by something other than the money itself. And that shows you how important trust was in, in the world of trade at the time. But these kind of promissory notes are actually different to the, the modern concept of the cheque itself. And that is believed to or originate in, in um, Islamic history, in, in the Sakh, S-A-Q-Q. -Q. Um, and that was also due to a need to travel over long distances, um, particularly due to the dangers of carrying large numbers of coins with you and not only dangers of course but the the, the practicalities especially if you're carrying gold because it's so unbelievably heavy uh, we know for example that the city of basra modern day iraq by the mid 11th century so it's 1040s 1050s anyone could deposit their assets with a, a changer or a banker who would hand over a receipt and from then on any subsequent purchase is made by a means of draft on that banker who had to honor it when presented by the vendor and that meant that those over time, those drafts themselves become kind of exclusive currency for many merchants. And um, it, it basically it makes international trade, uh, especially along the Silk Road, it, it actually makes it possible. And you realise just how important a significant uh, monetary system based on trust was to the way that that trade system worked. 
Um, so a bit of, um, you know, sort of simple stuff there. And I, I did come across a wonderful story as well of, of the mockery of the system. Um, a, a humorist called A.P. Herbert. He's a, a British, British humorist, 1890 to 1971. And he uh, started writing for Punch in 1910. And he, he regularly wrote about a chap called Albert Haddock, who, who often falls out with the government. And um, he wrote a story called The Board of Inland Revenue versus Haddock, um, otherwise known as The Negotiable Cow. And what happens is that Haddock has a row with the government about the amount of taxes he owes. And um, to pay it, well, he, he, he gets a cow and he writes on the cow that, to the London and Literary Bank Limited, pay the collector of taxes who is no gentleman or order the sum of 57 pounds, no, no zero shillings, zero pence, and may he rot. And he signs it Albert Haddock. Uh, and it then goes on to kind of explain the, the you know, the lunacy of the, of, of the system and also the kind of the flexibility of it. Um, you learn through the story that, you know, checks were written on the backs of menus, on napkins, on handkerchiefs, on labels, on wine bottles. And he's taking it a step further and says, like, why on earth can I please not write a cheque on a cow? Um, and it goes on and on, but it's a, it's a truly wonderful story, a bit of satire about the, uh, the exchange rate and also the government and also the collection of taxes. So the history of... Tra- hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Trust then, it's all about writing on cows, Sam. This, Absolutely. This sounds like histories of the unexpected <laughs> as of... Oh, this is brilliant stuff, Sam. I have something rather more uh, heart-rending. Um, I've been reading a brilliant book by uh, an American historian called Laura Briggs, and it's called Taking Children, A History of American Terror, because I'm really interested at the moment in looking at separation of parents and children. I've spent a lot of time reading all sorts of things from throughout history to look at this. And where I think the trust comes into this is that where the state intervenes in the family in order to remove children from family settings that they see as unsuitable, they experience violence and and neglect and whatever, there there is a trust in the state to act in a trustworthy manner. So to actually fulfil their duty as custodians of these minors, so of these children. But actually, looking back over the past, there is such, throughout history, across periods and cultures and continents, there is such a betrayal of this trust. And this is one of the things that comes through in this book by by Briggs. And what she does is, it's actually quite a slim book, but really powerful. And there's a series of sort of thematic chapters that look at the long tradition in the United States of state intervention to remove children from the custody of what they deem to be undesirable present 
parents, whether these be slave children separated from families at the auction block, whether they be Native American children taken away for unsuitable alcoholic delinquent mothers or black children seized from negligent parents or even in Latin America, the the children of suspected communists taken from their families or more more recently in the 1980s crack babies taken from junkie mothers or you know right up to the present day donald trump's administration separating children from their families seeking asylum in the united states and this is a rather sadistic politically motivated form of terror and it is an act of terror because it is about instilling fear in particular groups of people to stop people you know, trying to migrate to the United States. And I think in each of these cases, you know, for, for the children and their parents, the experience of separation was, was really traumatic. And, you know, and, and again, they are absolutely betraying distrust. And if we dig a little deeper... You see this everywhere, and particularly in there's a particular theme in indigenous peoples around the world. So, if you take, for example, Canada from the 1870s to eight to 1990s, an estimated 150,000 First Nation, Inuit, and Metis children aged between four and 16 years old were removed from their families and they were forced to attend Indian residential schools in Canada. And the purpose behind this was assimilating them into society, forcing them to abandon their native language, culture, way of life. And these institutions were funded and run by the government and various churches, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, United Churches. And it's estimated that there were 139 such establishments operating throughout most of the Canadian provinces and territories. The last school closed in 1999 and the kids who were attended these schools were forced to endure a regimen of academic learning religious prayer chores and conditions in these institutions were brutal and cruel with children being exposed to harsh punishments violence even sexual abuse there are tales of children who spoke in their native tongue having pins pushed through their tongues to stop them being able to speak and these widespread practices, you know, have really cut deep into the lives and psyche of First Nations people who feel utterly betrayed. There's a there's the psychological impact of separation of families, this forcible acculturation, uh, the inhumane treatment of innocence, resulting in an estimated six and a half thousand children dying from disease, neglect and other causes. And you know there this is you know a deeply scarring history and betrayal of trust in canada and you'll have seen in the news over the summer the discovery of more than a thousand unmarked graves believed to belong to indigenous children found at sites of former residential schools not only in british columbia columbia but also in saskatchewan and this culminated um, in a remarkable event that I discovered this summer, a friend of mine uh, living in the US, called, a brilliant friend of mine called Ari Burke, drew my attention to uh, this event. And on the 1st of July 2021, Louise Bear Mohawk Bear Clan mother of the Iroquois Confederacy 
travels to Parliament Hill in Ottawa, the country's capital, to address Mark Miller, the Minister of Indigenous Services, member of the Canadian Parliament, following the discovery of these of these unmarked graves, demanding answers for why these terrible acts were covered up. And Louise Baer, who's, you know, first woman to be, you know, elected to this position, used the symbolism of Canada Day to invoke mother law and take back the name of Canada, which was derived from the native Iroquois language. And her speech, Sam, is so powerful, it's worth quoting at some length. We arrive here today to ask for the original peace that we had originally agreed on and to return to an original relationship and understanding between our countries. And so I ask you today, on behalf of your Parliament, on behalf of you being the face of the country that built its wealth on the blood of our babies, I ask you why? Why did your country try and hide such a premeditated, heinous act to take the innocent blood of our babies and create your wealth? And then... Use our language in your infancy to name yourself. I ask you, we know why, but I want to hear it from you, because there can't be healing unless we understand why. We're in a moment of history where we need to right the wrongs, and so, with the authority invested in me to name and non-name, I ask you to answer my question. If you're unable to answer me, then I invoke the authority that I have that I take our name Canada back and put it in my basket and you'll be a nameless country. I thought this was absolutely incredible. Um, the, re the sheer power of it, that sense of total mistrust, of total separation, alienation, of children separated from parents, indigenous peoples segregated in their country, a country Canada separated from its name and all of it sort of breathed through with this lack of trust in a you know in in the state absolutely extraordinary Sam yeah no I love that that's that's, that's really powerful stuff it does make me think about this um this poster I came across which is from the second world war and it was part of Marshal Pétain's plan to save France from war and um he and it it, it particularly targets um refugees or population abandonné so abandoned peoples um and at the bottom it just says faites confiance aux soldats allemands and so so have trust trust the german soldier and there's a a picture of three bedraggled french kids they must be or a bit of daddy analysis here i say they are about seven between seven and so six and eight maybe and um, the one, the one, the smiling, tall, handsome, smart German soldier in his uniform. He's taken off his hat, his his uh, his helmet, and and has on his left hip one of these these kids who's smiling. She's eating a bit of cake, and then uh, kind of around his feet are uh, two other. Uh, to other children, perhaps this um, this little girl's sisters or anything. Anyway, everyone's having a, a wonderful time, and uh, clearly the, the 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 child who has trusted the German soldier has been rewarded with something to eat and is having a tremendous time. And there's a couple of other kids looking a bit shocked at what's going on here. But um, I, I found that uh, 
quite extraordinary because James, with all of this, you've, you've got level, different levels of trust. So one is, is, is yes, okay, try and please trust the government who's going to look after your child. Or in your case, there, there's this huge betrayal of trust, but there had to have been trust, you know, at least um, some kind of attempt at, at suggesting that what they were going to do was uh, well-intentioned. Um, and then you have the betrayal of trust here. So they're trying to, to, to um, portray um, a, a situation in which you can have trust in the government. And then, and then what, obviously what happens is this extraordinary betrayal of it as well. There are similar examples, um, some fascinating ones, Japanese propaganda posters also from the Second World War, uh, particularly passed out through, I think, the Philippines, but also in China after the Japanese had invaded China. And they're trying to, um, try, trying to convince them that the, the new powers are going to going to look after them and look after their interests. It's a very interesting graphic challenge, and if you look at the posters, uh, it's fascinating to see how um, how that was actually realised. Um, but you know, one other point I came across as well was also very interested in in the whole business of going away, um, primarily because I spend a lot of my life not at home. And it made me think about the Crusades, and there is a, a very interesting history of trust there. So very briefly, let me just tell you about this. Um, the problem is you've got, a, you've got a, a wealthy landowner who's going to go to Jerusalem and ideally he's going to come back with, with more than what he left. But he has to leave someone at home to look after his, 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 his everything he owns, his land, uh, his property. And what happened is that regularly on the return by the Crusaders, the people who had been left um, uh, in trust with, with, with the... Um, uh, with the land, with the houses, refused to give it back. And they did so with the full weight of the law behind them. Because they had been put in trust of this stuff, the, the crusader was not then allowed to force them or to require them to hand back the property. So lots of people didn't. And what happened is it, it happened again and again and again. And the only solution was for the crusader to petition the king. The king would then pass the issue on to his lord chancellor. And... Um, that was then solved by the Lord Chancellor's Court, which became known as the Court of the Chancery. And what happened is that over time, that Court of Chancery would continually recognise the claim of a returning crusader. But it took a while for that to set up. And um, the term use of land was coined. And also in time, it developed into what we now know uh, the word as trust. And that's where it came from, because this person was placed in trust to look after someone's land. Very good, Sam. Now, I want to end uh, with our inspiration for this, which is that little article that I read, um, which uh, is by a, a Dutch uh, scholar in a journal called Dutch Crossing, uh, and it's from 2012, uh, and it's by a, a woman called Susie Zilstra uh, at the University of Amsterdam, and it's called To Build and Sustain Trust, Long-Distance Correspondence of Dutch 17th Century Merchants. And this isn't just Daybell epistolary geekdom. This is actually really interesting as well. I got reading this because I was working on long-distance communication. So effectively what you've got is people separated by distance, working with each other. And here what we've got is long-distance trade. So you've got a merchant you know merchants you know hundreds of miles from each other and how do you build trust between them also this is a time when you have the development of credit systems and how do you give somebody credit 
In other words, how do you rely upon them to pay you back at a future date unless you know them? And crucial here for establishing this level of trust is, of course, the way in which you communicate with them. And you can communicate with them in the 17th century by letter, of course, which is why which is why I'm interested in this. But, you know, if you then unpick the letter, communication and trust comes through writing to them politely or courteously, but also writing to them on a routine, regular basis, telling them lots of information, news about the ex how the exchange is going, how the trade is going, when the ships have left, if there are any problems with um with the you know with the with the weather or with the with the oceans or that kind of thing so that people can be guaranteed of your trustworthiness in other words what it shows is that you are dependable and you are hard working and you are reliable and that they will then be able to trust you in the future so the whole article is really about how correspondence was used in that way and it goes through a whole range of examples but one of the most interesting things is the models that are provided in letter writing manuals in 17th century netherlands um, that tell you the kinds of things to write and there is a, a popular letter manual letter writing manual from 1597 uh, in dutch it is Gemeene Zendbriefen, uh, uh, which is translated roughly as common send letters. And these letters are, there is a model letter here where it says, there are several points which a good merchant should maintain well to do with all piety his merchandise. One of the principal things of which is that he keeps to his word as well as he can to establish faith and reliability and to keep it. For if a merchant is not true to his word, he loses reliability, without which one has to do traffic or business with much difficulty. Also a merchant has to be attentive with his pen, write down his affairs well, and keep a good account, as often much evil can be prevented this way. Also a merchant should keep in mind not to conduct business with people of light means. And then what it does is it trots through a series of different um, examples of correspondence and the kinds of things that people might put in their letters, good practice, bad practice. And then it gets to a, a great example, a series of letters written by a man called Jan van Rieven. Um, and what we get is, uh, is through his letters, which are written before and during the Third Anglo-Dutch War, uh, sort of 1672 to 74, you get a sense of how... Um, a Dutch merchant is able to correspond with people. The news that he gives, the details that he gives of ships leaving, ships arriving, when things have been dispatched, whether there are problems with uh, delays. And what we get is a sense from these letters that he is able to build up a solid, reliable reputation for somebody who is trustworthiness. He is able to get extended credit and build his enterprise so there we are sam our founding gem of an idea 17th century dutch merchants and the building of trust through correspondence
It's wonderful stuff, James. I reckon we could do several episodes on the history of trust, but that means we've come across a goodie. We've come across a cracking, cracking topic. I reckon you can, um, historians all over the world could be doing projects on trust in, trust in the Crusades, trust on the Silk Road, trust in the 17th century, Dutch trading, whatever it might be. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, I hope you enjoy that, guys. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at James Dable. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. If you're interested in the stuff that I was talking about children, uh, watch me on the 24th of Friday. I think it's Friday the 24th of September at the Futures 2021 event. I'll be on at 7 o'clock in the evening. I was going to say in the morning. In the evening. And it's going to be live streamed by the University of Plymouth. So you can get to see me uh, and ask me questions about it. So it'd be good to see you there. You can also check out more about us on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to support the podcast, we also have a Patreon page. That would be hugely appreciated, guys. We're on a mission to change the way people think about the past. And anything you can offer will allow us to produce more episodes. It's as simple as that. Thank you all so much for listening. We are back with the history of chaos. See you next week. Bye, guys.